Uh, my name is Christy, and for those of you I don't know, I work here. <laughs> uh, I work part-time. I'm Mike's assistant, and I do other stuff like money. <laughs> so anyway, that's what I do here. Um, tonight, I'm going to be sharing with you a lot about what's been going on in my life for the past couple years. So the past two years have been a long period of waiting. Um, for the past two years, my husband Sam and I have been struggling with infertility. We easily conceived our son Emmett and then found out after we'd been trying for a year for our second child that I have a disease called PCOS. Uh, it's a metabolic disease that affects the way your body processes insulin and thus causes your brain to not communicate as well as it should with your organs. Hold on, I need to figure this out. Okay, that's, ooh, that's, this, this, I would have been like this the whole night. Um, okay, so anyway, when your brain's not communicating so well with all the rest of the organs, there can be results like you not ovulating. Um, and sometimes it takes, uh, I don't know, it just, it can kick in later on in life. So I'm, I had it for a while, but it didn't kick in until later. So um, we had a year of having no clue what was wrong with us and fearing the worst. And then a year of slowly learning what was going on, but being scared the whole time of what else is wrong and how far are we going to have to go into the abyss of infertility treatments? In the meantime, my husband Sam was feeling more and more beat up at work. Uh, Sam works as an art teacher for Denver Public Schools and has always worked in hard to serve middle and high schools. The past two years in particular, the lack of communication and support from administration <laughs> and the disrespect of the kids came to a head. So Sam, on top of all the fears and desperation around infertility, felt like he was desperately waiting on God to show him what the heck to do with his career. Also, we felt like we were waiting on God to show us what to do with our home. Um, we wondered, does God want us to be in Denver forever? Does he want us to stay in our little home that we bought when we were newlyweds? Does he want us to move to be closer to family? Does he want us to move and have an awesome big city life in New York or Seattle? Um, this maybe more came from Sam, but does he want us, does he want to present us with an awesome opportunity to go make a house out of shipping containers in an old beat up town and convert half of the containers into an art studio slash restaurant? Okay, I'll go. <laughs> but I don't want to be, I, I would want it to be in Denver, not in a beat up old town. <laughs> so I have called this time my season of infertility. Just like fruitlessness and everything. Um, it not only meant that we were waiting for God, but that we were daily fighting feelings of hopelessness. And this fight affected every part of our lives. Um, then a couple months ago, God parted the waters on everything. Um, first of all, he affirmed our decision to be in Denver and totally paved the way for us to sell our old home in a day. Um, and guided us so freakishly perfectly into finding our new home. 
which is an awesome fit for our family and our hobbies and our gifts and playing with friends. Um, Sam, a couple weeks ago, accepted an art position at Lincoln High School, which happens to be seven blocks away from our house. (laughs) Um, And it's a well-run school, imagine that, where he will get to teach upper-level kids in AP art. Like, that's rad. That's rad. Also, I'm 11 weeks pregnant today. (laughs) So, (laughs) yay! (laughs) That was the big one. I had to build to it. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, so it's awesome. And I was so excited to share that with all of you. Um, So, this new season, the season of fertility. We're not really going to call it that, but it kind of (laughs) worked. It's weird. You know, <laughs> um, so it's, it's, it's awesome, and God was mighty to save us. But these fertile seasons aren't the norm for us, and the infertile seasons can really, really suck. So what the norm is, is God's character and his sovereignty. Those don't waver in spite of our situations. What I want to unpack with you guys tonight is how we stay fixated on God's character, not only in times where it's super easy to see how awesome he is, but in times where we feel like you can barely see him at all. To do this, we're going to walk through the story of Hannah again. Um, We briefly, well, no, we didn't briefly do it. We covered her back in January when we were first starting Samuel. Um, But in returning to her story, after studying the life of her son Samuel for the past months, we can see how the honesty in her walk with God and her trust in who God said he was created a beautiful legacy for her son. Samuel was called to prophetically guide Israel through the murky waters of establishing a monarchy while still relying utterly on God's authority. That's a a hard line. Um, He needed to be able to listen to the Lord at all times and at all costs. That was not an easy task. The Lord started preparing Samuel for his task through the honesty and willingness of his mom to serve God's plans more than her own desires. So let's get into Hannah. So the book of 1 Samuel starts with two chapters about Hannah. The first one is her story, and the second one is her prayer of worship. So I'm going to start by paraphrasing her story a little bit for you. So Hannah and Peninnah were both married to a man named Elkanah. Peninnah had kids. Hannah did not. Hannah had been trying for years and years to have kids and could not. Peninnah's response was to mock her over and over again for her worthlessness. The Bible said that she did it just to irritate her and that every year when they went to the temple, Peninnah would provoke her so badly that Hannah would weep and couldn't bear to eat. Meanwhile, her husband Elkanah saw how much she was hurting and responded with love. Every year, devout Jewish families would travel to the temple to give animal sacrifices to God. Um, When Elkanah's family would go to the temple to sacrifice, he would give a portion for each of his kids and for Peninnah. But when it came to Hannah, he gave her a double portion, uh, just as a way of you know, saying, I love you, I get this, this sucks. One year, when they were all at the temple, it says that Hannah, in bitterness of soul, wept much and prayed to the Lord. 
She asked the Lord to look upon her misery, remember her, and asked him for a son. She promised that if he gave her a son, she would give him to the Lord for all the days of her life. Uh, his life. Well, her, her life too. He probably lived longer than her. You know. <laughs> um, she told the priest that, I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. I have been praying out of my great anguish and grief. The Lord answered her prayer and gave her a son who she named Samuel, which means because I asked the Lord for him. The Lord, um, he answered her prayer. And sure enough, after she weaned him when he was about three years old, she brought him to live at the temple so that he would spend his whole adolescence serving the priest and God. She said, I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life, he will be given to the Lord. After she gave him over to the Lord, she prayed a prayer that, interestingly enough, doesn't even thank God for her son. And this seems a little weird, but the cool thing is is that she overlooks the beauty of the gift and focuses entirely on the character of the giver. I feel like when I'm given an answer to prayer, I'm just like, yay, it's mine, it's mine, and I'm so happy. And I'm like, oh, oh, uh, uh, yeah, thanks for answering that. You know. <laughs> so the fact that Hannah even skipped over thankfulness and went straight to, like, screw the gift, you are amazing, God. That is Awesome and crazy to me, because I don't know if I would do it. <laughs> um, so she went straight to worshiping God, not because of what he did, but because of who he is, who he has been, and who he always will be. So let's go through Hannah's prayer. Um, in First Samuel 2, Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. And there's always there. <laughs> so this first verse is just like a burst of praise, like she can't contain it. So in other words, Hannah's greatest delight is in the Lord, not in herself, her son, not in the lifting of her identity as a barren woman, but in who the Lord is. When she says, in the Lord my horn is lifted high, she's referring to a horn as a symbol of strength and power. Um, the horn was the main means of attack and defense for the animals that had them. So when your horn is lifted high, sounds weird, but she's saying that I, who I am has been made strong and great because of who I am in the Lord, not because of my life circumstances. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Hannah follows the why, with the why behind her burst of praise. The why is because no one shares God's holiness, power, knowledge, and intimate love for his people. Hannah gets it. It's nearly impossible to trust in God in crappy times if you don't believe that he is who he says he is. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. So Hannah then extends her message outward. Part of this message is for those who don't believe that God is who he says he is or who doubt God. Um, and I get that. 
But after my period of infertility, I would say that this is just as much a message to herself. Almost as if she's saying, how could I have been so proud that I really could have doubted that God knew what he was doing? Did I think that I knew better than him? (laughs) The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry are hungry no more. She who is barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. Hannah takes her exclamation that there is no rock like our God and gives very extreme examples of that truth. He is powerful enough to break the bows of warriors, which is something that the Israelites will really need to remember (laughs) as the Philistines are going to seize all of their weapons and force them to fight with slingshots and farm tools. So that's a good little reminder. (laughs) Um, So God is not just a God of war. He's a God who knows the needs of his people and who has the power to meet those needs however he sees fit. Whether it be by providing food, making a barren womb alive, raising people from the grave, arming people with strength, or giving a royal identity to someone who was previously defined by their poverty. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. Not only is he a rock whose power is unmatched, but he is the creator of the whole world. Everything was created and purposely set in place by the Lord. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails, Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. Hannah returns in the closing of her prayer to God's relationship with his people. She reminds us of the promise that he is protecting us and reminds us that we can't rely on our own strength. It's not going to work. As foils to these examples, Hannah reminds us that his power is also not to be taken lightly. What Hannah is getting at is that as she has learned and witnessed God's character, his power to change anyone's situations in a heartbeat, his power to create the earth, his infinite knowledge, and his perfect holiness, that it just does not work to ignore, fight against, or defy God. It pisses him off, and rightfully so. How can we truly inhabit the earth, his creation, and either not acknowledge him or acknowledge him and try to fight against him? He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. There's that horn again. Um, Hannah ends her prayer in a prophetic way. So remember, her son Samuel is going to be the mouthpiece of God as God responds to Israel's cries for a king. She is prophetically blessing the work of her son and being obedient to God and is giving hope to Israel that God will give strength to his king the king that they are so desperately longing for. The coolest part to me of this last chunk of Hannah's prayer is that it shows that Hannah gets that it has always been about way more than her. She has eyes that can see God for who he is 
and see the other ways that he is working outside of her life. He's putting into motion work that is going to change the lives of Israel forever. And with that perspective, I can just begin to start to understand how she had the strength to ask for a son and in the same breath promise to give him away to the Lord for his whole life. She got it. She understood that her desire for a kid could play into God's plans, but that his plans were far more involved, powerful, and far-reaching than hers could ever be. Hannah, in my opinion, had to have been practicing being God throughout this whole process. Um, if she was going to make this prayer after giving her son and then immediately after giving him away, knowing she was going to see him once a year at three. That almost makes me want to cry. (laughs) Um, After God answered my prayers, I tried to rejoice, but I felt like I had PTSD. I felt so overwhelmed by the years of struggling to hope in God and being consumed by fear that I literally was in shock. I felt like I should. But I couldn't do it. Not that I necessarily should have. <laughs> um, so literally, like, I, I forced myself to journal a couple times. I'm like, you, you need to give thanks. You just, just, just do it. And so I journaled a couple times. I was like, okay, thank you, God. I'm still hurting. Um, I tried to rival the crazy enthusiasm of my friends, which was so good and so needed. <laughs> But I, I just, I wasn't there. Um, I had lost so much sight of who God really was that I wasn't ready to give thanks, let alone be like Hannah and jump straight to praising God and his character. It felt like once the prayer was answered and the veil was lifted, um, that I finally let myself realize just how hard these past two years have been. Sure, I mean, I had glimpses of how much it hurt over the past couple years, but I really didn't let myself go there because I was scared that I couldn't handle how much it would hurt to really hash into what I was feeling. So early on, when I started to be overwhelmed by my fears and hurts of not being able to get pregnant, I kind of was in the denial phase. So I chose to not let anyone in I chose to not let God know how much I was hurting. And as we drew closer to the year mark of trying, my fearful habits of not being honest and isolating myself really took a toll. Um, I started feeling barren in everything. I would often hear voices that took the little truth that I wasn't getting pregnant and turn it into, you aren't a woman, you can't produce anything, you're ineffective. And I grew lazy. I didn't know how to have hope in anything, let alone God, because every month I said, don't get your hopes up. If you let yourself hope hope for this, it's just going to make it hurt more when it doesn't happen. And I didn't know how to separate that statement from hoping in God. I really witnessed what it was like for Satan to have a foothold. He took a simple fact about my life and thrived off the fact that I wasn't talking about it with believers And I wasn't being honest with God about it. And he stealthily turned that truth that I was struggling to get pregnant into an entire identity of ineffectiveness. So that's why I say that Hannah must have been practicing seeing God 
and that God must have been meeting Hannah and her grief in unbelievable ways because I don't think that Hannah's prayer would have been the natural first response of someone who year after year struggled to conceive. The effects of a time of trial and grief don't just disappear. Mine was just two years long. I can't imagine what year after year would do to you and was someone mocking you over and over again while you're grieving. I had no provoking, and I still believed the following list of lies. Um, I started feeling that a real woman should be able to produce a kid, so I must not be feminine or beautiful enough to do so. I started believing that I was less of a mom because I only had one kid. Not only that, but I was a bad mom because I was so consumed by my infertility issues. I assumed that I must be a disappointment as a wife because the fertility issues were mine and because I wasn't being myself, the woman who Sam loved, because I felt so sad and lazy. I believe that because I couldn't make a kid that I was useless in making everything else, so what was the point of being anything but lazy? I believe that I was too exhausted and hurt to invest in God. I believe that because my body wasn't functioning properly, that there was no point in trying to be healthy. I started feeling so attached to my son and husband because I had nothing else, not true, <laughs> that I developed this crazy fear that I or Sam would die early. I mean, literally, every time Sam went off on his motorcycle, I would kind of be like, what happens if this is the last time I ever see him? Like, <laughs> a little overboard. He sold the motorcycle, but not because of that. Um, <laughs> I was scared that because I felt lazy as a parent, that Emmett would never know salvation because I wasn't doing a good enough job of teaching him. I truly believed that I could not be disciplined in anything. I kept saying that I had to put all of my extra energy into fighting the feelings of infertility, and I had no space for discipline. I let my hopelessness in myself and God affect how I viewed God's relationships with others. I have people who are really, really dear to me who are wandering away from God right now, and I just became hopeless about them. And I just started believing, like, God can't, God's not going to do anything with this. God can't. Like, they're walking away, and it's very logical walking away, and God can't counter that. God can't bring them back in a heartbeat. Like, what, what is that? That's not true. So the awesome, the awesome thing is that God did not let me stay there. Those lies don't define me. I feared that they did, but they don't. My process with God through this murky season of waiting on him and living in the gray was really, really hard. But man, do I understand God better and I'm more humbled by him now. I want to walk you through a little bit of kind of what my process looked like of being lifted out of the mud. <laughs> so, um, first of all, it didn't start with me mustering up the strength to be disciplined and pursue God. I think God knew that and chose to be gracious. 
It started with God using his people in my life. He started with Sam, who saw that I was a mess, and asked me what was wrong over and over again. And finally, he coaxed a lot of the lies that I was believing out of me. God started bringing people in who asked me how I was doing with God. Um, They asked me if I was being honest. They asked me if I was crying in front of God, which I was not. I wasn't strong enough in the isolated confines of my own mind to fight the things that I was believing. That is why God is so amazing to give us the body of Christ on earth. Philip Yancey wrote that sometimes we must voice prayers that the suffering person cannot voice. And in moments of extreme pain or grief, very often God's love can only be perceived through the flesh of ordinary people like you and me. In such a way, we can indeed function as the body of Christ. And the body of Christ did that for me. So guys, when you're struggling through something, please, please do not isolate yourselves. I swear, this is the first step that we all seem to take. Whether it's because we are embarrassed or because we feel like we are going to let others down. Or because honestly, we're scared that we're going to be called out on our crap. These are the times that the body of Christ is made for. So once God called me out of my shell, he then started calling me to be honest with him. It was like once I saw the loving response that I was getting from people, I felt like, oh, wait, I will probably get a similar response from God. So my journal entries started changing from, Lord, hey, it's me, Christy. Um... If it's your will, can I please get pregnant this month? Shove emotions, shove, shove, shove. Um, To really spouting off my deepest fears. Um, Sometimes it was all I could do to just write, this hurts, and just lay there. And know that he was taking it and doing what he needed to do. So this is what speaks to me absolutely the most about Hannah. She practiced seeing God by not hiding anything from him. Year after year, she wept. She would not eat. She was downhearted, but she still prayed at the temple. In bitterness of soul, she wept and prayed. In verse 115, she says, I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. I had been praying out of my anguish and grief. Hannah's honesty took balls. We so, it did. She didn't have them, but it took them. Um, just in case you didn't know. Um, <laughs> we, we so often get tricked into thinking that if we are really honest with God, there will be a disappointment to him or to others because of what we are thinking. Or we think, I'm screwed. My thoughts I don't think they fit into what other people are asking. Or I don't think anybody else is scared of this or is doubting this. What I think, I don't think it fits into Christianity as I know it. So, oh well, I'm out. In 2 Corinthians 10.5, Paul writes, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. 
and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to God. So guys, being honest with God is what we need to do to take our thoughts captive. If you aren't truly asking the questions that you say that you want to ask and need to ask, if you aren't yelling at him when you need to, if you aren't taking time to make a list or identify what is wrong and talk to him about it, you are going to get lost in the mire of your own mind. Satan loves when we don't talk to God because he can creep in and start twisting every little truth around just how he did to me. So, if you feel so weak and hurt and don't think that you have the discipline to perfectly take captive every thought, it's okay. You don't. (laughs) None of us do. So what does that mean? It means that we have to start with being honest with God, and I promise he will meet you there. He is the one who has the depth of power to transform you, not yourself. You just have to take the first disciplined step to come to him and be honest. He will start the process of helping you take your thoughts captive and making them obedient to him, not to Satan's lies, not to your own fears, not to the influences of your friends or society. And I'm proof of that. (laughs) When I started to be honest with God, it was like he started giving me a divine perspective. It was like the blinders of my pain were slowly being removed. For example, there was one prayer night at SCUM where I came in and I felt just like suffocated by my infertility. And I knew that if anybody was like, how are you, Christy? I'd be like, you know, like I just, I couldn't even look look at anybody. Um, So we opened with a time to just kind of privately prayer. And I ranted. And I was like, this sucks. This hurts. I hate this. Uh And when I finally, that last one was a real poignant point. Um, And when I finally came up for air, um, when it was time to start sharing as a group, it was like God said, open your eyes. Look at every single person in this room. I am working all the time in all of their lives, not just yours. I started to listen to the stories of others um, about how they had been struggling that week or how they were searching for a job or um, were struggling as a parent, or, you know, what, whatever it was, struggling in their marriage. And I was like, oh, my gosh, God's, God's working. And, geez, if he's working in their life, he's probably working in mine. So my frustration that I wasn't pregnant yet didn't define God. God did not need me to define himself. So, if God's not defined by me and my feelings, which sometimes I like to pretend he is, um, where else can I see him? And God started calling me to start looking for that. And the way he did that was by telling me to freaking give thanks. (laughs) I tried to start looking for God and looking for ways that he was being good as a way of countering my fears and hurts. I started by looking for obvious things. Okay, my son's really cute, and he's weird and creative. 
Thank you, Lord, for him. My husband, what a dreamboat. <laughs> Thank you for him. My house, I have a roof over my head. Okay, cool. Oh, that was fun to get coffee with a friend. Okay, thank you for that. Okay, fine, fine. Yes, there are good things. And after that, it was like God's like, okay, a little more. What else do you see? And I slowly began to notice the slightly bigger things. So, oh, I can, I can breathe. <laughs> and I have the ability to speak. And I'm healthy-ish. And... <laughs> oh, I had a great conversation with this person and God's doing something. And, oh, whoa, this is crazy. Hebrews 12, 15 says, see to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. I had been so stuck and isolated in my bitterness that it kept me from listening to God and letting him guide me during my time of waiting. When I started looking for things to give thanks for, I felt the bitterness kind of slipping away a little bit. Not that I wasn't still there. And I felt like I could finally start seeing what God was up to. I had been so focused on how much I was hurting that I wasn't looking at, let alone praying for what was going on in my friend's life. I had a friend who was struggling in her marriage, I could have been praying for her the whole time. I had a couple friends who miscarried, and I was so caught up in my struggle that I just didn't even fathom that that would be horrible for them and how, you know, how I could be helping them. So as I started looking for things that showed me God's goodness, I felt like he started me pushing me to trust him and start giving him my burdens. He started calling me to submit in a really gracious way after he first let me flail and cry in front of him and then let me start seeing his goodness again. Most recently, I felt like the thing that I needed to do before preparing my sermon was to make an all-inclusive list of every single thing that I had believed as a result of my infertility and give that list to God. And I knew it was going to be hard, but I was like, I was ready, but not ready to do it. And then I did it. So after I made my list and I prayed over it, I thought, okay, let's start looking, looking at Hannah. So I started reading Hannah's prayer, and I'm going through it first time, second time. And all of a sudden, I was like, wait a sec. And I started looking back at my list of lies, which was conveniently open right next to my Bible. <laughs> And I started noticing that every single lie that I had written was countered by the list that Hannah made about God's character. What Hannah wrote about God totally replaced what I had let my identity become, a bunch of lies. So I want to show you this list because it, it's weird and cool. <laughs> it's almost like God was involved in it. Um, okay, so, number one, I am a bad wife and mom. No, it is not by strength that one prevails. My own efforts cannot make me a good mom, and it certainly isn't going to guarantee my son's salvation. Two, 
I am hopeless about people walking away from God. No, the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. It's not up to me to assume where people are in their walks with God, let alone to assume that he isn't able to bring them back in a heartbeat. I am hopeless about God. No, there is no one holy like the Lord, no one besides you, no rock like our God. He alone is worthy of my hope, not anything else. Hope in anything else will disappoint. And that's why I was having a hard time being, but I can't have this hope in this one thing. Maybe because you're not supposed to. You're supposed to be hoping in God. There's a reason why that those two things didn't coexist. And it was a good reason. I can't be healthy, can't produce life or life-giving things. I'm scared to die. No, the Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. I can't be disciplined. I have to be lazy. I can't be healthy. No, don't keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows. So we can be prideful in our abilities and think, I got this. I don't need God. But just as much, if not more so in my situation, we can be prideful in our inabilities by not believing that God has the power to change us and just saying, sorry, that's just where I am right now. That's who I am. Deal with it. It's not true. I can't produce life. No, she who was barren has borne seven sons. I am too overwhelmed and down to invest in God. No, again, remember, it's not by strength that one prevails. He will guard the feet of his saints. I can't, I can't, I can't in everything. No, he raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. Whew. <laughs> so, in summary, my process that ended in me searching for God in the gray, it started with God making himself known in the gray. And that is not unique to me, I promise you. So what is God up to in the gray parts of your life or just in your entire life in general if it feels overwhelmed by this period? I promise he is at work. He is refining and building and stripping off the layers of crap that we have accumulated. To see that, we have to first know who he is, then be careful not to separate ourselves when we are struggling. We have to be honest with God. We have to start looking for him and his goodness, even when we are totally consumed by the crap. And then lastly, we have to be willing to lay that same all-consuming crap at his feet. Hannah's legacy to her son was not just in her prayer of worship, but in the process, in the years of honestly weeping and pouring out her soul to the Lord. God met me in my process. He led me to a place of active thanksgiving, of choosing to look for God's goodness in spite of what my life situations may be. These past two years have also broken down more so than anything has ever done before, my pridefulness in what I thought I could do and also in my identity that I was letting be defined by my inabilities. 
these past couple of years have made me more dependent on God than I have ever been because I have seen the depravity of turning your hopelessness and yourself into hopeless about, hopelessness about God. So when you think of Hannah, think of how you can try to be even just the tiniest bit like her. She knew God's character. And because she did, she wasn't scared to pour out her soul to the Lord and be honest with God in her darkest times. And he met her there. And he not only gave her a son, but he created a legacy through her struggles and her hope. And this legacy would guide her son as he served as the mouthpiece of God to an entire nation. So thanks for letting me share my story with you guys. I hope there are parts of it that you could benefit from and that God is there. Um, You guys want to pray with me? (laughs) Father, thank you for your presence tonight. Thank you that we are surrounded by people who love it. And I pray, first of all, that for those of us who are struggling, or heck, for all of us, because we know there's going to come seasons when we do, that you would just give us the freedom to experience the body of Christ. And also that you would give us the strength and the love to be the body of Christ to one another. We love you, Lord. Go before us this week. Meet us in our processes. (laughs) Amen, Father.